Welcome to the Silver Screenings, a podcast celebrating movies in their 25th anniversary. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as tonight we look back on John Frankenheimer's Ronin, starring Robert De Niro and Jean Reno. Well, Matt, as we jump into our discussion of Ronin this evening, um, you picked this movie for us to discuss, and it just occurred to me as I was watching it that Jean Reno was not only in this movie, but also last month's uh, episode of Godzilla from 1998. So oh boy. 1998 was a big year for Jean Reno. And uh, I'm just curious to know if that was something that you had considered as you were picking this title. That, that did occur to me, actually, but it, it wasn't the reason why I picked this film. I, I picked this film because I think it's one of the greatest action thrillers ever made oh wow that's really i i was not expecting to hear you say that elaborate that's that's big that's big praise i i just love this film i i, I think it's underrated in many circles I, though i i do feel like it's gotten a, a stronger reputation in recent years uh but it's it's a film that i can watch over and over it's one of those movies that if it's on it's hard for me to turn it off and the car chases. I would argue, are, are the best car chases ever put to film. Uh, so it just really has a lot going for it. Yeah, I mean, I, when it came out in 98, I remember going to see it opening weekend. It was not a big hit, although it wasn't a bomb. It just didn't perform, I think, to the extent that they were hoping to in terms of its production uh, costs. But it got really good reviews. I remember the Janet Maslin review in 1998 in the New York Times. I read that the weekend it was coming out. I was really excited. It's one of my favorite movie reviews I remember reading. And she had this phrase. She said, John Frankenheimer directs like a world-weary Hitchcock. And I think that's a good description of how he how he handles his work here. Um, the car chases were, I think, the big buzz going into this film. Obviously, there, we'll I'm sure talk about the, the screenwriting, the the fact that there was a little bit of a controversy over the credits uh, for this, so much so that David Mamet didn't even take credit. He used a pseudonym here. But the big thing was about these car chases. And they are pretty fantastic. I wouldn't go as far as you in terms of thinking they're the best. I would say Raiders on the Lost Ark has a better car chase. I think the French Connection has a better car chase. But these are fantastic and each of them has their own flavor, right? So there's really three different car chases. They build up each one. So it's, it's you know, there's a sense of raising stakes uh, throughout. Uh, and they continue to get more and more elaborate. And they all have a different flavor to them in terms of what's going on in them. And that's not an easy thing to do. That is that is very much to the credit of, of John Frankenheimer's direction as well as the editors and everybody involved in making those scenes. Um, I was watching this to, uh, recently as we were just getting ready for this conversation and was struck by the post-Cold War element of this, which I think might not register to people right now as they come back. If someone's discovering this movie for the first time, that, that sense of it might not be apparent. As a matter of fact, I often hear people say, I don't get what the title's about. And I think it's pretty obvious. It's the Cold War's done and all these secret service uh spy type special operations guys who were mercenaries or whatever that were involved in that conflict no longer have a master because the cold war's over i mean that they're the masterless samurai uh so i think it's pretty obvious what the title's getting at here but um i do think that 
a newer audience wouldn't necessarily appreciate that sense of it being in set in this post-Cold War environment because the movie doesn't really spend time dwelling on it. It, it does have that 1970s style where it just sort of assumes you're going to pay attention, you'll pick things up, and it's just going to go, right? And I do like that. What I don't like, though, is the shoehorning in of this love interest angle uh, between De Niro and Natasha McElhone, or McElhone. I'm not sure how she says her last name, to be honest with you. Uh, but <laughs> she also uh, had a was having a big moment here because she was in uh, The Truman Show the same year. Uh, but I think that this movie would have been better if it was just kind of like, it's a bunch of guys smoking cigarettes, drinking liquor, and doing dirty work. You know, and that, that love interest thing kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't really resonate, and I think it is the weak part of the movie. It definitely feels tacked on, but it's it, it sounds like a studio note. And I think even Mamet was brought in to, to flesh out that relationship and, and build up De Niro's character more in the script. I, I mean, you made a lot of very interesting points there. I mean, to me, the strength of this film is really the ensemble cast and and uh, Frankenheimer's direction. I mean, you know, I mentioned the car chases, the action thriller elements of this film. Those are all fantastic. You know, they're very, very well done, um, brilliantly directed. But it's really, you know, the characters are very memorable to me. And you can even say that the character development isn't that great in this film, but the cast really brings a lot of their own personas you know, to the roles that they're playing, right? So uh, pretty strong cast. We mentioned De Niro, Stellan Skarsgård is in this, uh, Sean Bean, Jonathan Price. So really fantastic. Michael Lonsdale. Yep, fantastic uh, group of actors. Skip Suddeth is memorable as well. And, you know, De Niro is clearly the star here. You mentioned this idea of Ronin or Masterless Samurai. That first meeting when they all come together and they're all sort of tactically trying to evaluate each other's abilities. Uh, It's so brilliantly done. And and the way the performances, you know, suggest that this person's very competent, this person's a a poser, you know, that's trying to come across as more capable than they are. All these subtleties come through beautifully, you know, through the writing, but especially the performances. Um, You know, Sean Bean, plays sort of this poser character right this kind of wannabe sort of he is <laughs> it's like the poster pie i have to say that's that's one of the things when you watch this movie you see his character you're saying to yourself who the hell is revolved with vetting these people because yeah. they need to be fired this guy is so obviously not up to the task i mean his character exists just to make de niro look awesome right pretty that's much, all he's there for pretty much but it, Sean Bean does such a good job with it, though, and and his character he does he does yeah his character disappears very early in the film, and one thing I love about it is he always, and he doesn't get killed yeah you always expect him well th- there's that right that's pretty rare for Sean Bean, but you always expect him to come back at some point later in the film he never does and I, I just love that it's like this guy served his purpose in the story and he's out. And that feels realistic in a way. And he gets paid, by the way. Yeah. I mean, like, they're, evidently, they're very good about. Th- I, I just thought, like, why don't they kill him? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't really know how secret operations work like this. But I feel like he gets killed, if my, in my opinion, and they keep the money. Well, I but guess. Anyway. I guess the IRA is, you know, just a little more honorable that way. I don't know. 
it's just a very strong ensemble, and and that that's one of the things I I, I really love about this. And there's a real sense of momentum. You know, Jean Reno's character I think is very interesting as well. You know, he and De Niro forge this kind of unlikely friendship that feels very authentic, and there's this real kind of sense of immediate connection between the two of them uh, that I think anyone that's you know made fast friends with somebody uh, can can really relate to. So. Uh, you know, we, we should talk about the the whole screenwriting issue. The script is credited to J.D. Zyke and Richard Wise, which is a pseudonym for David Mamet. And it feels very much like a Mamet script, right? Just the way the dialogue comes across. Uh, you can definitely see his, uh, his voice throughout this film. A lot of debate as to who wrote what... Uh, I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend no, to know where one ends and the other begins, but at the very, it just feels very mammoth. Wouldn't you agree? In terms of the dialogue, definitely. Yeah. Um, the story definitely does not strike me as something he would have done. I know he, since after this, he did do the one that you love so much, Spartan, yeah. which seems kind of like a quasi sequel successor or spiritual successor to this in some ways, but in terms of what he was doing leading up to this, it doesn't strike you as anything that Mamet would get involved with. Uh, but the dialogue does have that feel, especially in terms of how questions get asked and then people turn around the questions and, and that kind of tough guy. The only thing I would say is like, there's not that there isn't swearing in it, but Mamet usually is overwritten and he just throws expletives all the time. You know, you think of Glengarry Glen Ross or Homicide uh, were two scripts he did shortly before this. And it doesn't have that vibe about Mammoth. So I, I do see that it must have had some other influence beyond Mammoth. It's clearly not just his voice. There is another voice, I think, in it. But Mammoth is definitely there. And he seems like the probably the, the final pass on it. Yeah, I would agree. That's probably the best way to characterize it. I mean, it, it, it feels like a blend, for sure. But Robert Frazee's uh, cinematography is just great. You know, it just has this... You'd mentioned this sort of 70s aesthetic. It's a bit subdued uh, in terms of the, the color palette, but most of the film is shot with wide-angle lenses, shot on Super 35. That really exemplifies the speed of the car chases in particular, just the way the camera's mounted very low to the ground uh, on the front of the cars in particular. And that's just so uh, brilliantly done, I think. And, and the editing is incredible, too. It's uh yeah, it's expertly done. It's a film that it's never been huge. I I tried desperately to get a lot of people to get into it when it came out. Nobody seemed to at the time, but I I loved it. And the only thing I think everybody kind of immediately did like was the car chases, which definitely have been influenced since then. The Bourne movies seem to take a lot from this uh, in terms of its vibe. Yeah, and in terms of those chases, especially Doug Lyman, I think even admits to that. Uh, in terms of some of the chase work that he did in the the initial Bourne film, but yeah, it's I think a, a solid movie, an entertaining movie. Um, I guess with that we can get into our questions here, uh, our Q and A. So Matt, hindsight is twenty twenty. Did the critics and audiences get this movie right or wrong when it came out? Well, I think the um, the critical response is pretty favorable across the board, and you know they seem to really appreciate a lot of things we've been talking about, right? The ensemble cast, the the car chases, just the quality of the filmmaking. 
to see something from John Frankenheimer, who's at this point a very well-known, well-established, you could probably say he's kind of a journeyman director, right? I mean, he's not necessarily an auteur, had, had a good handful of classic films under his belt, but uh, admittedly a, a pretty varied career quality-wise. So this was seen as really a return to form for him. I think you're right about that. Um, I would say, I think they missed it in terms of, they didn't seem to appreciate what he was going for in terms of that return to the 70s aesthetic. I don't recall anybody talking about that at the time of its release. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe maybe there were uh, critics that were observing that and noticing it, but I, I don't recall that being a part of the analysis of it when it came out, which I think is an important part of appreciating this. Um, it's also, I think, worth noting that John Frankenheimer's career was basically dead when he got this job uh, because his film before this, Matt, do you know which one it was? Um, one of the all-time disasters. Oh, French Connection 2? No. <laughs> no. No, no, That was like 15 years or 20 years earlier. Yeah, no. No, I, it was... Uh, I don't remember exactly. The, the Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, that's right. That's right. The Val Kilmer... Marlon Brando, complete, oh total train wreck of a movie. Yeah. Uh, which I remember seeing and I think at the time might have been able to learn to come to life as a campy classic. I don't think that's going to happen, but maybe that's the only way that movie ever gets resurrected. Uh, like people, you know, like how the Rocky Horror Picture Show, people that dress up in costume at midnight screenings. Maybe that awaits the, the <laughs> island of Dr. Moreau. But that was the movie he came into this off of. Um, and I think it's the critics rightly saw it as a return to form for him, but I think they missed that element of this was a, a throwback to that 70s style of filmmaking uh, because it really does have a different vibe. It's it's kind of hard to think of this as a 90s movie yeah. when I'm watching it now, and that was not caught, I think, at the time. Audiences missed the boat, but like you say, there is, there's a strong contingent that loves this movie and is into this movie, but I don't think it's ever going to pick up in the streaming era as, as a film. And our next question, Matt, the Stranger Things nostalgia question. What has changed, if anything, in our thoughts on this movie from when we first saw it? I'll say two things that I caught this time that I had not thought of uh, before. The first is just how obvious the stunt work is. It's very apparent to me when you have De Niro and then when you cut to a stunt and then when you go back to De Niro, right? So you have these shots where... He's running and chasing, and then there's this clear stunt double that jumps, and then you cut to this awkward kind of De Niro <laughs> landing where it's like, okay, that was clearly stunt work. It sticks out like a sore thumb in a way that I, I didn't remember. But the other is I love the score. Oh, yeah. uh, the score is absolutely fantastic here. Yeah. I had forgotten about how good it is. I don't think I ever really appreciated it. So it's by a, a gentleman named Elia Kermirel. I think I'm pronouncing that name correctly. He's a Czechoslovakian composer. And he just has such an interesting idea of how to score this film. And I think it works beautifully. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the uh, the stunt work. I, I always think about that shot of De Niro standing up in the uh, the sunroof with the bazooka or the rocket launcher. <laughs> to me, yep. that's always very obvious. Even though it's like it's from behind him, but it's just so obviously not him. Uh, always kind of makes me laugh. You know, it's hard for me to speak to a lot of differences, I guess, from the first time I saw it. Um, I, I guess I will say this. I mean, it really is one of those pictures that I've grown to love more over the years. I mean, I liked it a lot the first time I saw it, but uh, it's it's one of those films I've just come back to many, many times. And 
I, I'm glad you mentioned the score. Uh, I, I do have that score album on fairly frequent um, r- rotation. It, it is on Apple Music and other streaming services. So, yeah, it's very strong, very distinctive, uh, very memorable theme, especially the last cue, like right before the end credits. I, I love that cue. Uh, it's it's really really well done and and even the the chase music the action music is it's very distinctive you know it has a very interesting uh percussive style to it but it's not overly bombastic and just headache inducing like a lot of scores nowadays so matt the walt kowalski get off my lawn question what would gen z think if the movie were released today i i think it would go over pretty well i mean, you know i, I kind of think back to the french connection and our conversation that we did um, which is on YouTube, if people want to check that out. Uh, we did a deep focus episode on that film, and we do mention Ronan in that review. You know, that, that was another film we thought would play pretty well to younger audiences, and I, I think this film would do decently, maybe not as well as The French Connection. I, there's probably periods where, where people would find it slow or dull, but the, uh, the chase scenes in particular would go over well. But the point you made earlier, I think, is well taken. I, I do think you do have to understand the Cold War and sort of that period of uncertainty in the, in the 90s after the fall of the Berlin Wall as being very informative to this picture. And it's really kind of the point of the film, right? I mean, that's the origin story for these characters. That's what the title's referring to. So... And it's never really explicitly stated in the film, other than the fact that you know these are people with military backgrounds or intelligence backgrounds. I think another thing that actually would be lost on a younger generation is the idea of the violence in Northern Ireland at this time. Hmm. Uh, it's, you know, the IRA hasn't been on the news in a generation now. I mean, yeah. nobody really probably thinks about that. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, that's also probably a part of this that might be lost. And they'll be kind of confused, like, what's this group? What are they doing? I think that, honestly, the a younger audience probably would be confused, but probably just because they're not used to watching things undistracted. This is a movie that would require you to pay attention. Uh, I know the I, I was watching this on the Arrow Blu-ray uh, for our review, and they added all these little subtitles now for saying, oh, this is the post office, this is whatever. And the theater didn't have any of that, right? It didn't tell you. It just assumed that an audience could figure out that they said they're going to a post office. Later on, when you see them in a building, that building and the sign on it will be a post office. <laughs> where I think there's there's not as much hand-holding as what happens in movies today. And if you're on your phone while watching this film, you're going to miss out on everything. I think you're going to get just kind of confused or be indifferent to it. So I think that a younger generation might really not respond to this movie or get into this movie at all. And our final question of the night, Matt, the Kevin Feige franchise question, does this movie deserve a belated sequel? Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of a tough one. Um, it's interesting. You know, you could sort of transpose this whole concept to a different era of history, right? I, I, I think that would be interesting. Versus a direct sequel with the same characters or something like that. But just the idea of Ronin, just this concept of masterless samurai or, or warriors who, you know, their their war is over or their fight is over and they're looking for a new identity or they're looking for a new purpose in their lives. So let me throw this, this idea at you. 
a post-war on terror version of Ronin. Yeah, that's, that's where you have what I was kind of thinking from, about. Yeah. yeah. People from all sorts of different backgrounds uh, who now that, you know, the the whole game has changed, right? Now they're, I don't know if you're going to want to say that's located in China or that's located in uh, Europe, but I think it'd be kind of a neat thing to say. Maybe it's in Taiwan, for example, and you're dealing with microchips or something like that, and you're trying to get something. Uh, or at least you could do the same thing where you don't know what's the content of the thing that you're trying to arrange for. I think that could be an interesting take, but you would have to do it with different cast. Uh, bringing De Niro back would be, I think, a bad a bad decision. Uh, maybe bring Sean Bean back. You know, maybe he's still trying to make it uh, in one of these crews. But and he, he has to be let, he has to be let go like ten minutes into the film. That should be like the running joke in all the different Ronin films. <laughs> Yes, he shows up and he just he's maybe he's just like actually he's not really part of it. You just see him. He's he's working like at a concession stand. He, <laughs> he watched out that just no one notices or pays attention at all. Um, but uh, I think there could be something interesting if you did that, just because this will always be a thing, right? People who were veterans of a war or involved in the intelligence uh, community will eventually quit or lose their jobs or the the focus will change and they'll become irrelevant in that, but they have all these skill sets that can be applied in other areas. Yeah. Uh, and how do they make a living? What do they do? I think that's always going to be an interesting uh, subject. So I would actually think a belated sequel would be interesting so long as you decided to do a totally different cast. Here's my thought for a person to direct it. I think you're going to like this. Steven Soderbergh. Well, he's, he's a master of the ensemble picture, right? I mean, I think of the Oceans films. That would be... Well, I was thinking of like Haywire, right? The way he did Haywire. Yeah, that too. It's that that drawn down scale that makes it all the more interesting. I think if he took that kind of approach, but did an ensemble instead of... That was because that was like sort of a star vehicle. But if he did it as as a kind of a ensemble, he'd be, I think, the perfect director to take this. He even did, you know, sort of a 70s inspired car chase in the Limey, right? So he just has to kind of up his game there and... He's got a he's got a decent starting point. I then a possible actor. I don't know if, if it's the if it's the right person for it. But if you just wanted that kind of person, uh, I was thinking that Daniel Kaluuya would be a really good uh, person that you could put into like the kind of as the anchor for that ensemble. Yeah, that that would be a good pick. Um, I, I think about his role in Sicario as sort of an interesting example. Or I, I think he's meant to be a veteran. In that film too, or he has some kind of military background. I'm pretty sure it's yeah. I think that's I think that's the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that that would be a good fit. All right. Well, Matt, it's good talking with you. This is a great pick. Obviously, we'll we'll connect next month. We'll figure out. Uh, I think we're maybe going to do rounders uh, for next month. Yeah. So, but we'll confirm that up here. And otherwise, hope you have a good rest of the night. Thanks everybody for listening to us. If you like us. Please leave us a review on iTunes and uh, please do subscribe and follow us wherever you get your podcasts.